TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to the Bike Nerds Podcast, episode 108. The number one bicycle-oriented podcast on the OEM network is back. It's 2019, Sarah. I feel great at this moment in time. It's nice to feel great in a certain moment. You and I have been plagued by some very strange technical difficulties for the last six months. I can say that... You have been plagued <laughs> as a doctor and a patient. I have just been purely along for the ride. Well, thank you for coming along on the ride with me. Uh, we're we're Skype free, you and I. Thank whoever it. Thank ninety eight <laughs> degrees. Thank ninety eight degrees. Uh, I just I can't believe I'm. I'm so happy to not be updating my computer with a new Skype update before we sat down to record today. Microsoft and we no longer we no longer have to subject any guest to logging into that Skype account they created 30 years ago, and you know calling us from username like Cool College Dude 43. <laughs> I wish we had recorded like pre episodes that we produced. Like everyone just like bitching about Skype. Yeah, but there's probably there's probably a podcast about terrible Skype experiences. I guarantee it. But you know what? We're not that podcast. We're the Bike Nerds podcast. That's true. We also had 107 episodes of crazy Skype uh, experiences, and no, no longer do we have to do that. Uh, Sarah, what do you have any? Do you have any biking news to share? You've been doing any biking or has has the Colorado winter gotten to you? Colorado winter can't keep Colorado winter? Oh, the winter. I'm tired. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long it's been a long day. Win- I traveled to Fort Collins today on the Bustang. On the Bustang. Our friend Chris Johnson, friend of the podcast would uh, appreciate that. Anyway, the winter has not kept me from casually bike riding. Just this weekend, Corey and I um, biked from our home to one of our favorite neighborhoods in Denver. So, yeah, I'm out. The altitude is still hitting me. There's hills oh, nice. here. Yes, hills. So it could be the hills. It may not be the lack of oxygen. It's maybe maybe a combination of all of that. Probably a combination. I, I'm I have, yeah, I have to admit, um, I haven't been biking very much this week. You know why? Because um, it, it snowed like crazy here yesterday. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to admit here on the podcast, I'm really glad that I was walking and not riding my bike. 
because on my walk to the bus stop, I, I slipped and fell twice while walking. I fell once and it was yeah. epic. I had yeah. my backpack on. I was running at 645 in the morning after a bus <laughs> that was early in the middle of a blizzard. And I had a little tote with my lunch and I totally wiped out like face, <laughs> body. And as I'm pulling myself up, I look up and there is a not terribly smart person shuffling while it's still pouring down snow. Doesn't say anything to me. I run past them and make it on the bus. <laughs> and then get on the bus and look down and I'm like, I look like an insane person. I'm literally just like, I look like a snow person. We can we can only hope that somebody's like front door camera <laughs> caught caught this and I'm that sure they did. We're gonna be watching America's funniest videos one day. And it's just I gonna be you. <laughs> I imagine you're like in an oversized coat too, and you're like running with your arms out at your side. I I have the whole picture in my mind. And then the just worst, like all of a sudden, whoop. But the worst part is is like I could from where I fell, I could turn around and see my front door. <laughs> and I decided not to go home and to persevere. And then I ended up coming home because I couldn't even make it to Boulder. But <laughs> it made me feel better that you fell too. I fell twice. So maybe mine's a little bit worse because it was yeah. like I slipped and fell. And then maybe 100 feet further down the road, I slipped and fell again, right and in the same spot. Both times did you, like, fall to the ground? Oh, totally. Ugh. It's the yeah. worst. Yeah. And, and there were lots of people driving by when I did it. See, that's different. I just had one person. Shuffling snow. Shuffling snow in, in, in a blizzard. Yeah. <laughs> With, without an end in sight. That person was just no. shoveling snow. <laughs> it was a fool's errand. It's, it was purely in spite of the blizzard. Probably. It was so early, too. I was like, I couldn't so, understand. Let me ask you this question, because both you and I just now have referred to this storm yesterday as a blizzard. Do it you, wasn't. I have, I have to be honest. In my perspective, it felt like a blizzard. <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't see very far. There was lots of snow and wind. But I I wonder if we had this conversation with somebody locally, if they would be like, uh excuse they me, sir. And excuse me, sir and ma'am, that is not a blizzard. <laughs> it no, felt like would, one to me. <laughs> yeah. It felt the same, but it was not a blizzard. Yeah, there's no other way to describe it though. No. For what it was. And I think the moral of this whole story is it could have been worse. We could have been on our bikes and fallen. True story. I did that my first year here. Learned that lesson. That's why I walk to the bus stop now when it's <laughs> like this outside. <laughs> oh, it hurt so bad that year when I fell. It was that was epic. I had bruises all up and down my hip. It was so crazy. Mm. <laughs> uh, I've you know I haven't done a ton of I haven't done a ton of biking, except <laughs> to and from the bus stop. I've biked. I've also hiked and snowshoed. Whoa, look at you. I'm going to share this. Oh, I'm ready. I almost died snowshoeing. Died? What happened? Was I... it like a, a cliff, a precipice that you almost <laughs> went over? And my just body decided like snowshoeing wasn't for me. 
I got like two and a half miles in. Wait, wait. <laughs> you, you died from fatigue? <laughs> yes. Oh, I was going like full on like you were falling down a mountain. <laughs> more dramatic oh, than you that you should have gone with me on that my body just decided that it was not going to participate anymore yeah at some point two grown women had to take off my snowshoes for me because what? i was so weak no and disoriented that i could not pursue the rest of the hike with the snowshoes on oh my goodness sarah but I'm here today. Wow, I've well, I feel privileged that you're here. I feel yeah. like we should we should all enjoy this moment because who knows if it'll come again. No, it was a be- I'll snowshoe again. I'm not discouraged. It was a gorgeous hike. It was meditative. Yeah. Before I felt like I lit. I have never in my life had to depend on my body where you had to like be like okay one step. One step. Is there a way I can collapse and a helicopter come save me? No. Is that an option? Do you think that, that was like true? altitude? Was that did it was you, a combination of altitude? My body is a potentially of an eighty-year-old woman who's strained for <laughs> seco her whole life. It's just a lot of things. Now I have this image of that you're snowshoeing with a bottle of Prosecco. Maybe. And, and, you're, and as you're drinking, you go, I can't go on. Can't. You just, you just fall I over. pull out a thing of brie and a baguette. Yeah. I'm like, but I can't. And, and in, in, this, in this comedic moment, I'm, ex- I'm imagining the camera zooms out and you're literally 50 feet away from like the parking lot or the house where you're staying. I wish. Yeah, um, that 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 could be like a pure on altitude thing. It was a combination. I don't wish it on anyone. How how was the actual snow? Sh- I haven't snowshoed. I do. Do you actually stay on top of the snow with it? You do. It's kind of magical. It's meditative. It's beautiful. Yeah. I will do it again. I could see myself owing owning. Yeah. Snowshoes. Did you have did you have poles as well? I did. But then oh. one of mine broke. No. So I had to like clip them to the back of my backpack. It was a whole thing. My goodness. Were these rentals? Yeah. God. Sarah, that's an adventure. You've almost died twice <laughs> in the last few weeks. And they've but all I been st- snow related. But I still love living in Colorado. <laughs> Uh well great yeah so what's up this week you know this week we are talking with uh, a very delightful person I had a great interview um, unfortunately the last victim of our Skype user <laughs> experience That's, it was like the it was the experience that made me throw the towel in uh, but we have Melissa Balmer from Pedal Love um, and Melissa has uh, been listening to the podcast, interacting with us on Twitter and via email for a number of years. And, you know, one of our last podcasts of last year was Barb Chamberlain. And Barb actually recommended that we have Melissa on. Previously, Melissa had recommended that we had Barb on. So it just felt like a natural a natural segue to have him on. But despite uh, Skype technical difficulties, I think following that, I had some technical difficulties with my microphone and 
you know, to to that and to Melissa, I apologize. And to our listeners, there's definitely some really weird feedback and it's mixed into the sound and I just I can't pull it out. So apologies. We've solved that problem, though. We've abandoned Skype forever. Did we mention that yet? Goodbye, uh, but Melissa, Skype. Melissa, but Melissa is sort of is a professional storyteller and part of her work at pedal love is teaching other people how to tell their stories and we go into a lot of discussion about you know what does it mean for an individual to tell a story both how does that impact both them as a as a person you know how how what does it feel like and what's the personal meaning of being able to tell your story in a variety of ways. And then ultimately for bike advocacy, you know, what does it mean to be able to have sort of humanized stories sort of surrounding, you know, the data that we sort of dredge through every single day with bicycling. And so Melissa and, you know, her team at Pedal Love spend a lot of time thinking about how to communicate, how to tell stories, how to craft a narrative. And then ultimately, ultimately provide, you know, trainings for people to go through and, and custom advice on, on, on crafting those stories. She has, uh, along with a co-author, Jay Wall Jasper, is co-authoring a book right now that looks like it's going to be out sometime this spring, I think um, sometime in May. Um, seems to be like a lot of bicycle books coming out in May this year. Um and the book is titled The Surprising Promise of Bicycling and 13 Ways Bicycling Can Transform Our Lives. And so it started off as sort of a series of articles that really just sort of grew in content into what's going to be a book. And so I think it's going to be a really great time. And Melissa gives us a little bit of a preview into the book. Um, at the end of the, at the end of the interview, I'll be honest with you, Sarah, she uh, she's got she's got a little advice for the old bike nerds. Oh, I haven't listen to it haven't yeah. had access to it so i can't wait to hear it yeah a little little advice um at the end of the podcast about the bike nerds uh not being self-deprecating right we don't but have that's to do our that style it's our style but you know i think it's worth listening to melissa's got some good some good features uh some good thoughts on that she also says twitter is the future and i i clearly uh i rejected that notion yeah. <laughs> in like, the interview if that's the future we're totally screwed she might be right but i'm not sure the bike nerds can totally buy in at this All point right. uh you know with that i want i bid you uh, a good evening a, a lovely sleep dreams of walking through the snow and not falling over or having your body collapse in front of you. Uh, and with that, I would say that's enough thoughtful banter. Let's nerd out. For over 25 years, Bike Fixation has been designing and manufacturing bicycle parking and infrastructure products to help cities, neighborhoods, businesses, and schools become more bike-friendly. Bike Fixation has collaborated with architects, city planners, and transportation engineers to ensure their products are some of the most durable, innovative, and intuitive infrastructure products around. And for as long as Bike Fixation has been making their products in Madison, Wisconsin, they've been standing shoulder to shoulder with many of the Bike Nerds guests in supporting efforts to make bicycling more safe, more accessible, and more fun. Why? Because Bike Fixation believes a better world includes more bikes. 
to stay up to date on what Bike Fixation is doing for bike parking and infrastructure, visit bikefixation.com slash bike nerds. And now we're back with the Bike Nerds podcast. I'm curious to know, maybe you could just start off and maybe give us the the 30 second pitch for Pedal Love, you know, what it is, why did you start it? Yeah, um, what are you most you. proud of about it so far? Wow, it's morphed into many into different ways. So um, yeah, I create storytelling and communications tools to help people grow more active, sustainable, mindful mobility. That's what we do in a nutshell. And it's, it's me. I'm the, I'm the founder and the director of myself, but I also have the Pedal Love Council with people like Martha Ruskowski and um, Barb Chamberlain on it. That it's sort of a little think tank for different things about. We started as bike, with bike advocacy, but we've really branched into biking, walking, and transit. And now really, really sustainability overall um, with the help of a very brilliant uh, Twitter and communications person, Andrea Learned, out here in Seattle. It started initially right be, like the year before the what used to be called Pro Walk, Pro Bike, Pro Place conferences, and now they call them Bike Walk or Walk Bike Places, right? Am I correct in that? Because I didn't go this last time. Yeah, I think that's what it was this year. Well, yeah, okay, so that's the new rebranding. We're, so, we're, anyways, we're taking bets on what it is. Yeah, next year. so Long, Long Beach. Long Beach hosted it. And oh, my, yeah. my, yeah, so now my long-term life partner is Charlie Gandy, but back then he was a friend of mine, and he's really one of the architects of the modern bike and walk movement. So I was complaining about something about women and biking, and he said, well, why don't you just do something about it? So, so I started something called Women on Bikes California, and our claim to fame was that I was the first person to raise money to host an all-female league-certified instructor bike training for women. It had never been done before. This, is, this was like back in 2012. And I had no idea that it had never been done before. I wasn't a league-certified instructor. I just thought that there should be more of them. And there weren't any. In, there was only one. There was a master trainer in Long Beach, but there weren't any women. And there weren't any women in parts of South Central Los Angeles and other areas that could really use good bike, bike instructors. So that was our claim to fame originally, and we've done a lot of different things, but my background is in, is in marketing and public relations. And so it always had that kind of, I was always trying to get the fascinating people that I was meeting that were doing work in bike advocacy into the, what I call the mainstream or the lifestyle media. And Charlie and I really bonded over the fact that he's a really good storyteller. So we just, that was always something we were really interested in. And I was interested in working, collaborating with men, but putting the focus more and more on women, and especially women from different walks of life that at that time were really not being given this, the stage front and center. So we've done a lot of different things. Um, two years ago at the National Bike Conference, in DC, we hosted the first all storytelling plenary with women. I think there were six of us that spoke. So I like to come, I guess I'm an ideator. I like to come up with innovative ideas. I'm a storyteller and I'm an artist. And I'm always trying to think outside the box 
of how we can get biking and walking in transit, but let's talk about biking for this, into stories that a lot of people ride bikes or they rode bikes as a kid, but we're not talking about it. So every woman's magazine has a place where bike stories can be regularly. Every health magazine. And one of the things, of the three things I'd like to talk to you about today is reframing the conversation and somebody at People for Bikes, and maybe you know who it was, responded this week to Chris Woodyard's piece in the USA Today about the drop in bicycling commuting across the United States that yeah. he wrote last week. And so People for Bikes, I don't know if it was Michael Anderson or who else because they didn't sign it, but they, re- they did a rebuttal. And it was exactly the kind of thing that we need to be doing constantly. It was brilliant. Reframing of the conversation about what's really important. Because we're all, we were using the National Household Travel Survey, and it's not really telling the full picture. So that's, you know, that's what I'm really interested in, is, is how, do we, how do we tell a story to fresh audiences? And... How do we build bridges? Because we have 11 years to cool down the climate. We don't have time to not become brilliant storytellers. We have no more time to geek out, wonk out, hang out with our tribes. The bike is a tool for optimism. It needs to be front and center in any sustainable conversation, sustainability conversation, and right now it's not. So how's that for a rant? No, that's great. <laughs> you know, I... One of the things, you know, one of the reasons that Sarah and I started this podcast was for a very similar reason as you is like we we just felt like there were conversations that were being had that weren't being recorded in some way. Yeah. You know, super smart people um, doing really amazing work. And, you know, by and large, Sarah and I just want to sort of seek these people out. And we yeah. use the podcast as an excuse to really do that. But yeah. that was really that, that that was really the motivation. I'm you know, what, what is it about sort of the storytelling piece to this, Melissa? So, you know, you mentioned you started off sort of doing the, the LCI trainings, the all-women LCI trainings. Yeah, and I did events, and I did – I always blogged, and I always had a website, and I was always pitching uh, people like Maria Sippen, who is a rising star in urban planning. But at the time, she and I met on Twitter because – we were both complaining that um, the Gap had come out with their commuter line and they didn't have anything for women. And that's how we connected. And I basically cajoled her into becoming one of these LCIs. And I did that with several people. And it's everything that you said. There's brilliant people that are working in our field, but the audience that needs to know about them is is huge. And how do we get these brilliant people onto the, how do we get them, in, not just TEDx's, but how do we get them in TED? How do we get them on the stage at the Aspen Ideas Festival? How do we get them at the big um, conferences that are about, not just about, advocacy for active living, but all kinds of things. And so that's really, you know, I always have a kind of a publicist hat too. And so that's really, you know, my ambition is to to really get people to think bigger about where their work can apply and where they their stories can apply. And also the one to now I really focus on storytelling training. So not only am I writing a book, but as I'm writing a book, I'm also constantly 
writing email newsletters with tips in them um, next week and the week after. We're starting up our 2019 webinars on storytelling again. And how do, for a low-cost way, how do I get the tools in the hands of these really smart people who we can walk out and fall back into data and statistics instead of storytelling, which opens hearts and minds? And that's really the key thing that's important. Yeah, is, is that what you think storytelling does, is that, it, that it's a way to access people that we currently aren't reaching today? Absolutely. It's, it's the way to build the bridges between bike shops and bike advocacy. It's the way to build bridges between city bikes and athletic bikes. It's the way to build between different the different races, the different economic situations, and just people that remember they used to like to ride their bike or people who would like to have their children ride their bikes or people who want to ride their bikes with their children and they don't know if they can do it. Absolutely, because... Data and statistics are important. We have to have that. But the science shows that only heart, only storytelling changes hearts and minds. There's specific things to storytelling that the human brain, the human DNA is wired to appreciate storytelling. It's how we remember things. We can't remember data. Almost all of us can tell you, almost all of us are a fan of either Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, or the the Star Wars things. Those are all heroes' journey stories. They're what, how we make meaning. And that's, we've got to tap into that. We've got, we've got to really become consummate storytellers so that we can engage fresh audiences. Yeah, and so, so you take that that ethos and that sentiment and you work with, do you work with individuals? Do you work with organizations? Like how, to to what extent does your your trainings help? Yeah. So I've done, I've done training, storytelling trainings at the, at the bike, uh, the bike summit in DC. I've done them for the California bicycle coalitions board when I was the media director there um, a few years ago. I do one-on-one coaching with people who want privately to learn how to be a better storyteller and and presenter so you know you have to give an hour-long presentation how do you bring storytelling into that and how do you make sure that your presentations are now the most compelling that they can be and I'm always looking outside of the box so I'm not looking for the best presenters in our world I'm looking for the best presenters in the world and learning how to hack into those skill sets and bring them into into our world because we have science writers right now that don't that are asking people from Vox, people from Grist, asking how do I reach bigger audiences? This is so important. How how do I tell things in a way that people are going to listen? And one of the big things that we, those of us who are really advocates or activists or even professionals, we don't understand that just because we love something, if we don't share it to other people in a way that they get what's in it for them, for their own personal well-being, they're not going to come along with us. We can't get people because of should. We can get people, we can get, we can get a few people with should. We can get millions more with what's in it for them, joy, happiness, and well-being. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's, we had a guest on last fall who helped people for bikes do some messaging research, right? And 
ultimately it comes down to what's in it for them um, yes. within yes. all of this. What would you What would you say if you had to name sort of like the number one thing from a communications and storytelling thing that bike advocates should stop doing right now? The, the number one thing that sort of just gets underneath your skin when you see it happen is is there is there one of those things? It, it may be more than one thing. <laughs> So the number one thing is to lead with storytelling instead of your pitch. Lead with a story. Show us, show us the people that, whose lives are being transformed. Tell us your own personal hero's journey story or tell the story of somebody whose life has been transformed. Because of, you know, People for Bikes is the Big Jump Project is crucial for us to be doing anything where we want to go as far as what can what bikes can do for health and well-being for people personally and for the planet and so all of the advocacy organizations and the different professionals I work with even if it's say uh, an organization that does infrastructure lead with the stories about the people's lives it's already transformed or it's going to transform tell us a story about a real person that people can relate to. Tell us your own story, that your own hero's journey, so that people can relate to you. Uh, there's a, a well-known uh, writer and speaker, Carmine Gallo, who has written a book called The Storyteller's Secret, and he's written about what makes a great TED Talk. And he says, you have to share the story of your struggle and your overcoming. That's the hero's journey in order for people to really connect with you. Or you have to share the story of struggle and overcoming of, of people that you work with or the clients that you serve. And so that's what I think we're not doing enough of it. Um, Pittsburgh uh, Bicycle Coalition, San Francisco Bicycle Coalition, they both are really good at that. So I want to give a shout out to them about it. And every bike shop, every urban planning firm, every advocacy organization, biking, walking, transit, it doesn't matter. You can tell these kind of stories. That's that's what is often missing. Yeah. I love that. I love that. What do you, um, I mean, it sounds like as I sort of hear you say this, right, that, that there's a, there's a much broader universal application of this, right? It extends way beyond bike advocacy, it extends way beyond sort of this, this sort of narrow niche market that you find yourself in. Um, what, what does, you know, you mentioned before that, you know, that your work tends to focus on sort of, you know, the stories that uh, women have to tell. I'm just curious about, you know, can we talk about sort of what the importance, we, we, we discussed like, why is storytelling important? How can it be effective? But why is it particularly effective or important for women to be doing the storytelling? Why is it, does that extend to people of color? Does it extend to sort of other groups that are maybe yes. underrepresented in yes. public media. Right. And so, and I'm happy to work with anybody. So I don't want men to think that they, they're not welcome or I wouldn't be interested in doing a workshop or coaching with them for them. But absolutely it's important right now that we, we bring the voices forward that have not always been front and center. We need people to see themselves and women particularly are really good at when they look at ads or when they look at marketing or they look at publications, they will say to them, themselves, if they don't see something that really represents 
how they see themselves, age, size, race, whatever, they'll say, they don't mean me. So if you want to look at a really great example of something that's really inclusive, you would look at Oprah's O Magazine. It's been brilliantly inclusive for many years in a way that few other publications were. But many of the uh, health and well-being and many of the women's lifestyle magazines, the editors now are often much younger and women of color. Vanity Fair now has a much younger and woman of color at the helm because that's 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 our nation now. We're, we're very diverse and now we're finally starting to show who's really there, who's really here. And everybody, everybody wants to matter. Everybody wants to be a part of it. And storytelling is in our DNA because there are certain things when you hit a story the right way, when you tell a story the right way, there are certain aspect parts of the brain that light up. There's certain chemical um, reactions that happen and it creates empathy in people. It creates aha moments. It creates ways for people to see their world in a new way. And now we're in a time through social media and video that storytelling can be shared around the world. So TED, the TED Talks went from being this little think tank, very smart people getting together in Northern California to being this worldwide movement where if I say people like Simon Sinek and Brene Brown, chances are, if you don't know who I'm talking about, your listeners do. And they are two people that have done two of the most watched TED Talks of all time, and they're TEDx Talks. Do you know what I mean when I say TEDx as opposed to the TED Talks? Yeah, definitely. So they are TEDx Talks that, that got into the TED Network, and 39 million People have watched Brene Brown's talk on shame and vulnerability on TED. The same amount or more on Simon Sinek's Why. That's where we need to get the people in Viking, the stages. We need the 39 million people watching and being engaged. And that's why becoming masterful charismatic storytellers is so important. We need, when people get together and do those, isn't it like in Idaho or someplace where they, every year the big tech barons and the barons of all the top industries get together, we need John Burke of Trek to be invited there to speak and then to razzle-dazzle them. We need Bill Gates to understand that the bike is a tool for optimism. We need Malcolm Gladwell, who rides a bike, by the way, interested in biking so we've there's a lot of people that are influencers that ride bikes that we need to there's a guy here in um in seattle named chase jarvis who is he did one of the first iphone apps and he's a photographer videographer and filmmaker he's brilliant and he's the the uh, co-creator of creative live and he rides a bike and he's one of the most brilliant storytellers. And I'm so excited that I'm in, in his backyard now because he's one of the people that I want to bring in the conversation. We need to start getting these brilliant storytellers to help us because people are used to being seduced into behavior changes by the top minds in, from ad agencies. And we've got to have that kind of storytelling power. 
in order to change hearts and minds. And it's not easy because most of us don't have, you know, Coca-Cola's ad budgets. I don't know about you, but I don't. Few do. We'd all be selling a product as extensive as Coca-Cola if we did. Right. In some ways, right, their product is the ad. Right. There's, exactly. It's you the know, feeling. Yeah, it's Coke it's how you are supposed life. to feel when you exactly. when you drink a Coke. And you can not be happy with Coca Cola as a product and still study that they are they were some of the first people to do very diverse ads all around the world. Their ads are the people that they're selling to. They're not people from the United States. Yeah, I've, I was always. I was always amazed at how, um, you know, Coca-Cola like packaged and sold a slightly less sugary drink in Diet Coke as the (laughs) the healthy alternative. And you're right. You know, you you look at it from a purely sort of like data driven. You're like, yeah, not really that much more healthy. But it's but, not more healthy. But man, the storytelling like makes you feel like you've made like the best choice you possibly could for your life. Exactly. And that and that's really it. This is all about your we really have got to take into the personal health and well being angle. And that's you know, yesterday I was actually talking to my co author on the book that um we're finishing this year, The Surprising Promise of Bicycling for America. J. Wall Jasper. It might be before your time, but uh, many of your listeners might remember when the Utney Reader was in its heyday. It still exists as long form journalism, but at the time when it came out, it was very different, and it was right when all the alternative weeklies started to really become popular. And so they were taking local and regional news and a lot about sustainability, creative thinking, creative, just wonderful things, and they were putting it in a national magazine, and it was beautifully done. And so Jay is my co-author for The Surprising Promise of Bicycling, and we were... It, the the Surprising Promise was originally a report that that we worked on together a couple of years ago. And it's maybe 85% done. But now we've got to take off our report hats, and we've got to take off our... I've got to take off my PR hat where I'm trying to make sure that I've got stories from every place in the United States, and I've got as many bike advocates of different ages and timelines, and did I tell a story right? Are people getting mad at me? And now we just have to make sure that the book is a great story. It's got to be something that my friend that teaches, uh, that's a librarian in Spokane, Washington, likes. It's got to be something my mother likes. It's got to be something that people that are outside of bike advocacy read this and go, wow, I had no idea. This is really cool. This is transforming cities for a good, for a good reason, for good, good things. And that's, you know, that was something that Barb Chamberlain and I think originally several years ago sort of connected over as we've, Biking, bike advocates have been focused on replacing commuting car trips because that's how they originally got the money from the government in order to do anything. But now it's not being graded so much on that. And what we've got to do toe in the water of replacing short car trips because for most Americans, it's overwhelming to tell them to commute 
to work by, by bike. They have kids, they have low responsibilities, they have a 20, 20 plus miles per each way. They can't even think about it. But they could, but if we get the story to be, you can bike to yogurt with your kids, you could reverse your diabetes by uh, biking for to gross, the grocery store every other day. You can sleep better at night. You can lower your blood pressure. And if we show people of all ages and all sizes and all races and all walks of life and all economic backgrounds, people will start to see themselves and say, why not? I can give this a try. And that's, that's really our job right now. Great segue to talk about the book. Um, I'm really excited about this. I, you know, I first met Jay when he interviewed me years and years ago about oh, a story he was good. doing in, in Memphis when I was working there. Um, and I'm super sad. I mean, super glad that you've like teamed up with him on this. What? So it, it was a report that you said that sort of turned into this book. How, do, how does that happen? How do you sort of take uh, a report and turn it into an amazing story? Because it feels like it feels like there's, there's a parallel there, right? For people, practitioners who are in the there field. There is a parallel. And, and, and my thing is, uh, you know, on those like per, those uh, personality tests or whatever, I always come up as the idealistic teacher. So I am. I'm always learning stuff and wanting to share it with other people at the same time. So you caught you caught me out right there. That's me. So I'm. How do I learn how to become a better storyteller? So you'll be interested in my book, but also how do I teach you how to be a better storyteller? So then you will go and inspire your crowd and your crowd to go beyond your choirs. So in truth, this started as a love letter to Charlie maybe five, six years ago, because I had, when I first met Charlie and he came to Long Beach as the mobility coordinator for Long Beach, we bonded over liking to get good news stories about biking into the press. And Long Long Beach hit, um, got into bike friendliness at number 19. And they got this big story section from Bicycling Magazine I think because the journalists knew that Charlie was a good storyteller. I mean, 19 is not very exciting, but I guess Southern California, it was exciting. So we, I mean, we, we were excited because it was us, but we, I had the opportunity to meet a lot of the top people in bike advocacy because Charlie was in Long Beach. And so Andy Clark came to town when he was the, the, the president or the executive director of the League of American Bicyclists. And they were storytelling over dinner about some really funny things. And I will leave it to the two of them someday to tell you about how they almost got in a fist fight from a, a guy wearing an N, uh, NRA t-shirt. But they told me the story of the original Bikes Belong campaign, which was not the Bikes Belong organization. It was the political campaign to reinstate federal funding for biking the second time it was gonna be included in the national transportation budget. And that story has been lost. It's not really told anywhere. It slipped through the cracks, but it had, it was a really compelling story because it's the story. Do you know the story? Do you know what I'm talking about? I've, I've heard the story from Randy Newfeld. So he was there. So I feel like I have a, a, I at least have one perspective on the story. We have one perspective and it might be a great perspective. Yeah. But basically what happened is that Rails to Trails, the, the founder of Rails to Trails is the one who originally got 
the Senator Moynihan to create the active transportation budget. And I'm going to get all these names wrong, so everybody can get mad at me for it. But um, And that was in 1991. Well, that money flew under the radar because there weren't that many bike advocacy organizations yet. So Charlie was the founder of Bike Texas. He found out about the money and got quite a bit of it for Texas. And then he left that and he was working for something called the Bicycle Federation of America. And he was doing trainings around the country. He and, Char uh, he and Andy Clark actually worked together for a while at the same company, doing these different trainings all around the country to get bike advocates trained professionally to be set up for when the money got reinstated again. That was part of the thing. And he was doing, Charlie was doing the training in 1996 at something called the Thunderhead Ranch. And Randy Newfeld was there. And the high, the national transportation budget was going to be redone again. And the highway lobby had decided they wanted to gut this active transportation money. It was money that was going to biking, walking, public transit, nature trails, all kinds of things. And the highway lobby, it was a tiny amount of money. It was decimal dust compared to what was being spent, but they wanted to get rid of it. And Rails to Trails knew that Charlie knew the bike advocacy. So they sent, uh, I think they sent Andy to go talk to Charlie and convince him to pitch this to the people at the Thunderhead Ranch that were in the bike industry and to see what they thought. And they did. And with Randy Neufeld and others, they decided that two months later, they would go to the um, Interbike Trade Show and ask for money to do a reauthorization campaign. So it was the first time the bike advocacy ever went to the bike industry and asked for money in a big way. And the bike industry at the time was not at the table on uh, active transportation. It was some things, small things had been done here and there, but not in a big way. And Linda Dupriest was there from Specialized. She said, I will get my boss to host a breakfast. Uh, her boss uh, agreed. They hosted a breakfast for about 200 people and gave a pitch. And Charlie was the closer. And they said, we need $300,000 to make this Bikes Belong campaign happen. We need $300,000 to save billions of dollars for biking, walking, and public transit in the future. And John Burke, after a dramatic pause, said, I like what I hear. I will give you $100,000 for this campaign if you can match a two-to-one by the end of Interbike. And they did. Took them two years to reauthorize, reauthorize the, the funding, but they did it. And the bike industry likes it so much, the feeling of it so much, they decided to have a Bikes Belong organization, which is now, as you know, People for Bikes. Yeah. The current home of the bike nerds. So current home of the bike nerds. So John Burke is definitely one of the heroes of that story, as are Randy Newfeld and, and many others. But it's an important story because it could be done again. It's not about looking backwards. It's about looking forwards. And it's about, imagine if we got Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's ear on the Green New Deal and told her that story. She probably doesn't know it. For, and this is the, the young 
uh, congresswoman from the Bronx that is on fire right. in leadership. And so those are, you know, she's the kind of person, she's the sort of person that we need to have understand and embrace the bike. And those are the kind of bridges that we need to build, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I can, you know, when you sort of, when you sort of tell that story as you, as you just did, it's sort of, right, it demonstrates, there's a lot of lessons in there. It, it's about people, right? Very in specific yeah. individuals. It's about yes. a very specific time and a very specific sort of, you know, action that needed to be taken. But the reality is that all of that at a, at a very high level is stuff that's con that, that scales and is continually relevant no matter when or where it actually is, right? The ability exactly. for people to identify a problem, uh, you know, come up with a solution, seek out new partners, exactly. um, all, all of this, all of the facets of that, even if we weren't there, if, if, you know, if all of us no, weren't there. No, it's exactly about being solution oriented. And yeah. the other thing that's interesting is that, that the age, these old white men weren't old when they did this. <laughs> they were, Charlie, I think was 36. They're still not old. They're still not old, but, but to a lot of really young dynamic talent in bike advocacy in the bike industry, they say, oh, you know, why are you leading with this? Yeah. Like, no, because I want to inspire you to give yourself the permission slip from God to say, I'm already invited. If I have a passion for this, I'm invited. If I want to be involved in this, I'm invited. Invite yourself. Invite yourself. I'm inviting you right now. If you're listening to this and you're <laughs> passionate about it, you're invited to the table and your story matters and you can become a masterful storyteller and a great communicator and get your community involved. That's that's really the pitch. We've got we've got to take this idea like the the Alexandra Cortez was inspired by the Keystone pipeline um, protests and we need people to say why not me? Why not me? I have some great ideas about how we could make my community more bike friendly. Great, let's hear it. Let's hear it. How are we saying things in a way that doesn't make sense to you? You know that you've, you've hired people to to tell people bikes great messaging things. Same thing with um, the there's great visual storytellers that are coming in. If you've been in bike advocacy for at least ten years, you know that there was a a renaissance or revolution in what what everybody's website looked like. Mm -hmm. It used to be a lot of a lot of white men in spandex, white middle-aged men in spandex, the mammals. There's very few mammals, <laughs> on, and it's not that the mammals aren't important, but it's like you've got to you've got to show people that they're that that they're invited. You've got to you've got to be welcoming. And, and that's what storytelling can do too. Yeah, and it, it also has to, people have to be able to see themselves in the story and or the storyteller, correct? They do. And, and so I look a particular way and people are not going to be able to relate to me, but they might be able to relate to me that I hadn't ridden a bike for 30 years. It took Charlie six months to convince me I could ride a bike again. They might be able to relate to the fact that I deal with a chronic health condition 
that's not um, it's not life threatening, but it's challenging. And in a sense, I'm a climate refugee. I moved up here to live. Charlie and I moved up here to be with my aunt, who's elderly and needs some help. But it was also a great opportunity for me because I can't stand the heat anymore, and I don't want to live in air conditioning. So there is something about me. There is I have struggles and overcoming that I can share with people that maybe they can see themselves in me. Whether no, no matter whether they're five or whether they're eighty-five, and so that's my that's definitely my goal. Does the book dive into the perspectives that other storytellers bring to answering this question about the promise of bicycling? The area of storytelling was one that we had as part of the 13 ways that uh, bicycling has surprising promise, that it's one of the chapters that needs to be finished. And... Yes, that is my goal. And so there are a few more. There's some people I've talked to that I haven't included in my writing yet. Um, there's people like Dan Mann with the Mann Group, who is a marvelous storyteller and advises all kinds of active living organizations about how to be better retailers. Uh, yeah, in a nutshell, yes. That's We definitely have to put together what we've already done, and then there's more. There's more about that. We need storytellers of every age and every background. And anyone can become a masterful storyteller. That's what, It doesn't matter if you're an introvert or an extrovert. You can become a great storyteller. So yes, the answer is yes. We, wanna, we, we will have that in the book. Here's a super nerdy question. Sure. The, the medium of a book as a storyteller feels daunting. <laughs> did, you, did you think about doing something maybe a little easier? Well, this will make you laugh because, yeah. <laughs> and I don't want to wonk out on you as an art, as, as an artist. But everything that I thought would be easy about putting this book together ended up being hard. And so it's late because, not only because my health had taken such a, a nosedive over the past two years, but because um, a lot of things that I thought would be a piece of cake are really hard. Hard for me to understand. They're not going to be hard to do eventually but they took a lot longer so yeah I, I was a little bit like let's make this report a book jay come on it'll be fun it'll be a musical in the barn we um not quite that there's a lot of lessons to be lessons to be learned but um yeah it's you know i mean i like um i've always been an artist and i wanted to do art for the cover of the book and, but I've always been doing everything by hand. And so the last two years of me learning how to do illustrations, like in uh, Illustrator and Photoshop, and learning absolutely everything, eating a lot of humble pie. I've spent the last two years eating a lot of humble pie. We'll just put it that way. But there's light at the end of the tunnel. I'm, I'm finally starting to figure things out. Yeah, great. Can you Can you let us know... When, when do you expect the book to be available and where, where do you think people will be able to find it? Yeah, we really were self-publishing because we wanted it to come out as an ebook and as a print book and we wanted to be able to have it be the price we want it to be. We want to be able to sell it to bike stores and bookshops and online. So our hope is that it will be out for May, May for National Bike Month 
and hopefully you can have Jay on himself closer to that uh, to talk about it. Uh, that's our goal right now. That's our goal. And people can go to the website uh, paddlelove.org and you can see excerpts from it and you can sign up to be a beta reader if you want to read early early versions of it. Oh, great. So there, there's a lot of stuff. There's several um, several blogs and things like that. So you can get some of the interesting stories that... that um, and we share... We're going to be also exerting it with um, with Mobility Lab. So it was it was great. We've already shared something with them and it got a really good response. So we're very excited about that. Excellent. Excellent. In the meantime, listeners can also visit pedalove.org and interact with you about all of the great storytelling services you offer. Yeah. And one of the things that I just kind of wrap this up and, and show you how we can use storytelling in different ways. I don't want people to feel daunted if they listen to me and say, well, I'm, I don't want to be a public speaker. Well, maybe they could do a podcast like you're doing. Maybe they are a photographer. Maybe they are an artist of some type. So there's all kinds of storytelling ways that you can engage fresh audiences. And the thing that I'm doing is using my art. So I'm doing coloring pages. So I'll do a piece of art and then I'll make it a coloring page and then I'll share that with people. And then I will do it. I will create it uh, or finish it in say Photoshop or Illustrator. And then that's also a piece of art that people could use in different ways. And I found when I was using my own art on Twitter, which I'll give you guys a nudge because I was listening to your Barb Chamberlain interview and she's the master of Twitter. (laughs) Um, is really the place for you guys to build a fresh audience because it's not the reciprocal follow. So I'll put my publicist hat on and say, please, please share more on Twitter because that's where the um, the journalists are going to find you. Yeah, it's where the world lives. It's where the world lives. Just just not the two bikers. (laughs) Yeah, but but do, because there's people like Alyssa Walker from Grist who's brilliant. Yep. There's Peter Flax. Um, who I'm sure is on your radar, mm-hmm. but if he's not, he needs to be. He's also a, a brilliant storyteller. And there, it's just an, a great way to amplify the conversation. And so I, I found that when I was using my own art, whether it was for um, Bike Month or 30 Days of Biking, or just to say, why can't we be kinder to each other? If I shared it with a piece of art, then it got picked up and shared much more even then when I did photos. And so it really came home to me that, that yes, I am a writer, but I'm also an artist, and that's going to be one of my most important storytelling me- methods. And I want to get kids involved. And so you guys at People for Bikes are doing some really great videos. What I want to do is um, coloring infographics as coloring pages to mm. whether it's like how massive cars have gotten compared to the size of a human being whether it's how much uh, carbon you're saving by replacing short car trips, how do you put this together in bite-sized shoes that are fun for kids to learn so that they go home with their parents and they say, did you know that 20% of traffic during the day is from taking kids to school? And I'd really like you to bike to school with me at least one day a week. Could we do that, Mommy? Can we do that? Who's going to say no to that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's, that's really what we've got to inspire. 
Well, Melissa, it has been delightful. Great. Thank, Thank you. you. I've, I'm a big fan of you guys, and I've, um, I feel really honored that you invited me to be here and spend time with you. Thank you so much. No, thank you for for actually accepting. We have about a 10% acceptance rate. People, most people are just don't want to deal with us. So, thank you for being one of the 10%. I'm totally, I'm totally I'm totally joking. Off totally the records? Joking. I don't What's the problem? Oh, no problem. Just totally uh trying to be self-deprecating. Uh, pe- people love a- us. They're clamor they're clamoring to be on the show. No, you know what? That's a big problem in our world. That's a topic for another time and yeah. another training because it's huge. And that's part of the reason why I do what I do. And part of the reason why I'm making myself step forward because I realized if I didn't lead from stepping forward, I wasn't going to inspire anybody else to. I can coach people all I want. I can say, write op-eds. I can pitch you and get you in a in a a national magazine mm-hmm. but if you're not ready to do it for yourself we don't need you in one national magazine we need you in 50 if you don't take the reins and say yes to yourself it's all for naught yeah so thank you but look in the mirror a little when you say we're not on twitter <laughs> we will <laughs> We talked about that yesterday, too. In addition to abandoning Skype, we are recommitting to Twitter. <laughs> right. And you I'm, know what? You could, your first Twitter could be um, recommending what, you know, asking people what, what they think that your recording equipment should be instead. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, I don't know if you've heard about it, but we had NPR people tell us that the phone app Record It was what they used. Fascinating. It's on the yeah. list. Right. So if it's yeah, good enough for NPR, it's good enough for the bike nerds. That's what I thought. That's what I was like, <laughs> oh, I gotta, I gotta learn about this. So yeah. So that's what I, I would say, put it, put it out there on the Twitterverse and ask some, some people who do it, and 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 you're gonna get, you're gonna get more people starting to say yes. Excellent. Thank you so much. Really Thank appreciate you. your time. Um, a big fan of your work. Glad we could have you, you on. And um, do let us know when the book is finally released, and we'll we'll put it on Twitter. We'd love it, and like I said, we'd love to have Jay come on yeah. and reverse it because he's a delightful person to speak to. He's so joyful to listen to, and um, you guys would have a lot of fun. With I'm him. overdue for a conversation with him, so I'll, we'll definitely make that happen. I'm so glad to hear it. Have a beautiful rest of a beautiful weekend, and I'll look forward to seeing you on Twitter very very soon. Absolutely, thank you. Thanks. The Bike Nerds Podcast is a joint production of the Bike Nerds, Sarah, and Kyle, and the OEM Network based in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, visit theoemnetwork.com slash thebikenerds. Want to nerd out more? Find us on the web at thebikenerdspodcast.com, on Twitter at thebikenerds, and on Facebook, The Bike Nerds Podcast. Drop us a note or recommend another bike nerd to have on the show by sending us an email at thebikenerdspodcast at gmail.com.